Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, welcome. We've been in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, that word means an expression of grief. That's what lament is. Lament is simply an expression of grief. And there's a whole book in the Bible all about that, which was written in the context of the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem in particular, being destroyed by the Babylonians as a function of God's judgment and discipline on the people for their rebellion and their idolatry. And yet as we've been working our way through that, we've been learning about lament and grief and God's kindness and faithfulness. And, uh, and, and as we're working through, it's bringing up other subjects like, like how do we think about sadness and how do we think about grief? And so one of the messages I've been wanting to do in this series is to talk with you about the grief stages. Probably all of you have heard about grief stages. It's very, very common in our culture. Um, greeting cards talk about this. If you've been to a funeral, uh, preachers talk about this. If you Google grief, that's the first thing you're going to find in a Google search is grief stages and, and information on how to grieve and the, how you work through those stages. So <clears throat> I want to talk with you today about a biblical evaluation of those grief stages, the background of that, where those come from, and uh, some of the thinking behind that. And then I want to move, as we talk about the grief stages and the evaluations, I want to move into what we might think of as a, a biblical understanding of grief. And a lot of what I'm going to summarize here, we've talked about along the way. So hopefully we're moving toward the end of our series. And so I'm trying to just summarize a lot of where we've been. And even with the breaks for Christmas and whatnot, uh, hopefully this will be good review. So grief stages. What do you know about grief stages? Talk to me here. That was your cue. So don't be shy. Uh, grief stages. Yes. Yes, grief stages are considered normal. Yeah, that's right. Popular psychology has promoted it. And, and, and not like, you know, something psychology promotes, it's like, okay, I might hear my psychiatrist talk about this. Other things that psychology promotes, it's like you, you can't watch a sitcom. You, you can't watch a movie. You can't go online without having this facet of psychology uh, just, just coloring the whole culture. And grief stages are one of those things that, that has infiltrated our culture. And it is everywhere. It, it is normality when we think about grief. Okay? What else do you know? Very prevalent in the church, yeah, yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of, the church is kind of the Johnny-come-lately in the culture, right? Well, whatever the culture is talking about, the, the church will be talking about five years later. Whatever's popular in the culture, the church will be doing ten years later, right? But, but that's true. So, so this is, it is normal in even Christian grief ministries to hear about the grief stages and whatnot. So, anything else? Anybody know who, and, and I know you have your notes, and some of you like to look ahead, and so you can't cheat. If you haven't looked at your notes, anybody know where the grief stages originally came from? What's that? Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I think she was a Swiss psychiatrist. She moved to the United States in the 50s, and she got involved uh, especially in hospitals and medical facilities where end-of-life issues were prominent. And, and frankly, if you read her journals and, and some of her early writings, she was really shocked at, at the, uh, the professionalism, the coldness, the clinicism uh, of how the medical practices in those days, at least in the States, were dealing with end-of-life issues. And so sh she was fascinated with that and really wanted to make a contribution to better the care of terminally ill patients in the United States. And so she began to study... Uh, 
people that, that had received recently a terminal diagnosis. And uh, so as she did research and made observation, hundreds of people, thousands of people, uh, she began to catalog all of that. And, uh, and then she wrote a book, it's in your notes there, called On Death and Dying. That's the book she wrote in the, what's the year? I, I put it there. Um, 1969, she writes this book, right? And, and in the book, she writes that as she was observing uh, patients that had recently received a terminally ill, a, a terminal diagnosis, that those patients tended to respond in certain ways. And as she's looking at how all these people respond, she categorized, she, she identified five different responses that are typical for how people with a terminal diagnosis respond to that diagnosis. And th- that's where we get the grief stages from. Now, interesting, even when you hear that, uh, and, and these are the stages that she identified, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. You've heard, you've heard of those, of some of those in some form or fashion, right? And then, you know, some of them say four, some of them say eight, but uh, Kubler-Ross, initially it was five stages. Now, now, what's interesting is what she was doing, and, and I'm, not, I'm not a Kubler-Ross scholar, so this is the best as I can understand her writing. <clears throat> what she was simply doing is saying, these are typical ways that people facing end-of-life issues, how they tend to respond. That's what she was doing. <clears throat> but what happened is that book, and especially that section of the book, became so popular that the, the psychological culture took what she was describing as description, meaning this is what people tend to do, and they turned it into prescription, meaning they said, this is what you must do to grieve. These are the stages you need to walk through. These, these are the gates of grief normality. And they turned it into a process for mental health. Do you see that? And we're going to talk about this in a minute. Psychology can be very helpful in terms of the observations it makes about all sorts of things in life, right? But where psychology often goes wrong is when they turn observation into instruction. When they say, this is what people tend to do, and then they turn that into, here's what we should do, right? And we'll talk about why that is in a moment. But this is what you typically see today, is this is a grief cycle, right? These are stages that people typically go through. And, and the way this is usually prescribed is that, um, you know, if, if you're going to pop out of your grief healthy and, and healed, you have to work through all of those stages. And it's very common in, uh, in modern psychology that if you're going through grief, a, a therapist or a counselor is going to help you to walk through each of those stages. So, for example, if, if you, let's say, you know, grandma died or, you know, the death of a child or, you know, something horrible like that, and you never struggled with denial, that counselor might actually encourage you to work through a season of denial as a means of your mental health. And you're going, that doesn't make any sense to me. I know, it doesn't make any sense to me. But if you're thinking that this is the path of healing and you don't go through all those stages, a counselor doesn't want you to miss out on that and so they may take you through things that even you're not experiencing. And this is how it typically looks. I, I put There's a small version of this in your notes there. Um, denial, right? Uh, the shock of, of hearing the news, you know, grandma died, I have terminal cancer, um, the stock market just crashed and I lost my 401k. Whatever that initial shock is, 
that leads to the initiation of grief. So denial is things like avoiding, confusion, shock, fear. You know, we're not accepting reality. Second would be anger, frustration, irritation, anxiety. This shouldn't be. This isn't right. This isn't fair. Those types of thinking. Three is bargaining, struggling to find meaning, reaching out to others, telling one story. You know, you know, I'm going to beat this cancer, right? I'm going to do this and that and this treatment. And, and you're, you're planning and you're strategizing and you're trying to figure out how, how can I overcome the reality of what I've just heard is what bargaining is all about. Depression, self-explanatory, right? Being overwhelmed, helpless, hostility, losing hope. And then finally, acceptance where... You know, you, you, you kind of get to the place where you accept the reality of whatever has happened and, um, and, and you're sort of moving on. So, and again, the, the point of this is that health is apparently achieved by working through the stages. Now, again, my little star there is because I don't know that Kubler-Ross actually intended her observations to be such. And, and there are scholars that believe that's misunderstanding her. Again, I'm not an expert, but that's what the popular culture has done. There are these stages, and if you're going to be healed from your grief, you have to work through those stages. And you've heard that, right? You've heard this somewhere along the way. Um, well, then I don't know. If, did you have to take psych in, in, uh, at A&M? Or, so how many of you taken like a modern psychology class, like a basic college-level psychology? So the, the, I, I learned this when I was taking you know, psych 101 in college. Uh, it's, it's just kind of it's normal. It's just what you do. Okay, so let's talk about a biblical evaluation, and, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go fast and kind of step on the gas pedal here through some of these, and then uh, we'll downshift and go a little bit slower through some of these other sections. Okay, because we've got we got three pages of notes we got to work through here, and uh, my name's Keith. I'll be your tour guide today. Okay, what's a biblical evaluation? First of all, would you agree with me that those five stages do reflect some of the ways a person may respond in grief? Would you agree with that? Maybe you've seen that in your own life in grief. Maybe you've seen it in a friend or a family member. Uh, Kubler-Ross was a great observer of humanity. And again, psychology can be valuable. The social sciences can be valuable because getting to study one particular type of person or one particular type of phenomena or one, one specific scenario in life, and you're seeing hundreds or even thousands of patients, there's lots of valuable data. I mean, I've, I've done a fair amount of abuse counseling, but I've done, uh, I've read books about people that do that, have done that thousands of times in their career. And I'm thinking, I can learn from them because they have a lot more experience on, on what people tend to do. And I think she's on to something here. She's made some accurate observations about how human beings typically respond to grief. Secondly, we can also agree that it is common for people's responses to change over time and sometimes quickly. Again, won't ask for a show of hands or examples here, but I bet even in your own life, you've seen how your own heart can ping between different responses in the same event of grief, right? One, one moment you're angry, the next minute you're crying, the next minute you're like, okay, what do I need to do? What's the plan? I gotta get ahead of this, right? And, and you're just, you're, you're responding, and, and that's what she's saying is, we, we tend to respond differently, and sometimes going back and forth, and, and, uh, in, in a rather quick fashion. However, we need to remember, biblically speaking, that what is common and normal responses in life don't necessarily reflect what is wise and godly. Will you agree with me on this? Sometimes the way we typically respond is not the best way to respond. Sometimes the most common ways a culture responds to a given life scenario doesn't mean just because that's what most people do, that's necessarily a good thing to do. 
And, and this is why, now, now think with me on this, okay? When we think about normality, we have to have two different definitions of normality, and I hope this will be helpful. As Christians, we have to think more in normality in two different ways, okay? We have, first of all, what we might call worldly normality. Worldly normality. You say, what's that? That is what most, pe- what, what most fallen people do, right? Uh, or uh, what most fallen people typically do in a given scenario. Okay, that, and we can say, well, that's normal because most people respond like that. And then that's, that's, we call that worldly normality. But we have to contrast that with what we might call a biblical normality. And that is, okay, so here's the situation. What does the Bible say is wise and helpful and honoring to God? And, and again, often what the world tends to do, what's common or normal in the world is not what God's saying to do. And so we have to make a distinction. And this is one of the ways that, that psychology and the social sciences and just normal humanity fails. Because often what we do is we say, okay, we're going to go study a whole bunch of people, find out what most people do, and make that the mark of what all people ought to do. And, and yet, you know, fallen people studying other fallen people to determine what we should do that's right is not a good strategy. Okay, so just we got to make this distinction here. Now, uh, this is interesting. Um, some of you that have taken our CBCD uh, track one here, you, you've maybe heard this quote. This gentleman right near here is named uh, Alan Francis. He was the chairman of the DSM-4 task force. You say, what's that? The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It is the the medical manual that um, professional mental health folks use to make mental mental health diagnoses okay so so bipolar and anxiety disorders those are all in this dsm and based on observational criteria they make diagnoses of mental health issues from this okay so he's the chairman this is the guy that was over the whole task force when dsm4 came out now this is a few years old dsm5 is out now and and so this is a little bit dated but the point is that this is not just some off the street psychologist this is the guy that was helping do the revision of the diagnostic manual. And he, at one moment, he just started to wrestle with this thought, can we go study people? Can we use the scientific method through the social sciences to determine normal? His book is called Saving Normal. Listen to this. this is ins- He's not a Christian. And as you're going to see here, uh, he demonstrates it in his words. Can we use statistic Statistics in some simple and precise way to define mental normality. Great question. Can we use the bell curve uh, to provide a scientific guide in deciding who is mentally normal and who is not? Conceptually, the answer is, well, why not? But practically, the answer is, and well, you can see what he wrote there, okay? Uh, no way. This unbelieving, ungodly, unsaved, uninformed by God's revelation said, you know what? I'm not sure that's a good approach. Why? We must reconcile to there not being any simple standard to decide the question on how many of us are abnormal. And that is an incredible admission from a man of this stature. This is a very, very honest unbeliever. Very, very honest unbeliever. And he's saying, I've, I've, been, doing, I've been doing psychology for decades. You know what my conclusion is? You can't go study human beings and determine what's normal. And we say as Christians, you're right. You're on to something. Why is that? Because we need God's revelation. 
to know what biblical normality is. We, we need to know Jesus, the perfect man, to say, that's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're aiming for. We can't go study a bunch of fallen human beings and say, oh yeah, well I guess, you know, 90% of them do this. We can't do that. And, and so he's making a, a really, really honest and accurate evaluation there. Listen to Jay Adams. Psycholo- this is not in your notes, but I, I threw it in here. Psychologists may make many helpful studies of man. Psychology may be descriptive, but it transgresses its boundaries whenever it becomes prescriptive. In other words, it can tell us many things about what man does, but not about what he should do. Are you with me? Okay, Christians don't hate psychologists. We don't hate psychologists here. You're biblical counselors. No, of course we are, but we're not, we don't hate psychologists. We just understand the, the proper role and value of psychology, but also its limitations. And whether it's psychology, whether it's other sciences, whether it's finances, whether it's how to raise your kids, whether it's uh, you know how to you know flirt, whatever it is, we need God's revelation to know what is right and good and normal and honoring to Him in any discipline, not just psychology. Uh, so that, that's on your notes there, okay? While observation of human behavior, experience, and the work of the social sciences may be helpful in many ways, only God's revelation in Scripture. Write that down can help us to know what is an accurate way of understanding grief and point us to wise and godly ways to respond in grief. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Okay, so this is where I think Kubler-Ross can help us. This is the way a lot of people respond in grief, but we need revelation to say, but how should we respond? Are any of those responses godly? Are, are, Are those ungodly? Are they unhelpful? How do we think about that? And again, in any realm of life, we need God's revelation to determine normality and what is good and wise. Okay, Scripture, interestingly enough, Scripture doesn't present grief as a series of stages that one must work through. Do you know that? You, you will not find any place in the Bible where, where Moses or David or Jesus or Paul say, let me help you with this. Step one. Step two. It's not there. And in fact, in fact, one of the one of the geniuses of the Word of God. I mean, it's it's genius because God's genius, of course. But it's 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 almost it's shocking, but it's beautiful. Grief is not as coherent in the Bible as we might expect it to be. It's a little bit messy. You say, why is that? Because grief is messy. Right? When you're grieving, you're not looking for step one, step two, step three. I mean, you're, you're like trying to just pull your thoughts in. And I think the Bible presents how we grieve and how we deal with grief in a way, follow me, that's appropriate for the experience of grief. And, and I'll show you what I mean here in a minute. Okay? But, but there's not, there's not stages. There, there's not step one, step two, step three. Uh, secondly, Examples of, of grief in the Bible vary widely, which, confirm it, what, which confirms what we observe in life, right? People experience grief in different ways. Um, think about that. Um, how, how many of you have dealt with a death in the family? Death in the family, probably most of us, okay? Family, extended family. Um, how many of you have kids or grandkids? Okay. Uh, how many of you have a spouse? Okay. Now, think about that scenario. Did you and your family members grieve the same way? No. And in fact, sometimes if you're the type to be like, oh, I'm just broken. Oh, I just feel the weight of this. And you look at your your son or your daughter or your spouse 
and they're like, okay, who's serving the, the, the buffet at the, at the funeral, right? And, and who's calling all the family members and, and who's made arrangements of the, and you're going, what's wrong with you? Grieve. And it's like, well, the way they're serving is their way of grieving, right? Whereas your way of grieving might be, I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm just sad. I don't feel like doing anything but sitting here thinking about my loved ones. So it's not right or wrong. It's just, it's different. And so one of the, one of the beauties of the Bible is to say, look, if you're doing this and the other person is doing that and they're both within the realm of biblical grief theology, don't freak out about it. There's not something wrong necessarily. Um, because we grieve in different ways. And I think Kubler-Ross helps us with that. People grieve in different ways. They experience it in different ways. Uh, third, if we want to be a little bit critical here, would you observe with me that four of the five stages that she identifies are responses that the Bible labels as sinful or unwise? So we have to say that, okay, so while that might be what a lot of people do in grief, we usually get grief wrong, is what... The Bible is saying um, it, it is it is uh, uh, unwise to deny reality as God presents it to us. It is an occasion for repentance to respond in sinful anger. It is unwise and foolish to bargain and to foolishly plan and 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 uh, you know come up with these crazy schemes when you should be drawing near to God and and we ought not to lose hope and, and fall into the blackness of despair when, when we have a great Savior who's always with us and never forsakes us. So you see, four of the five responses, the Bible says you don't want to do those. Are they normal? Yes. Are they wise and even sinful? Oftentimes they are. And, and again, we shouldn't be surprised at that. Isn't that what life is like in this broken world? With, right? we, we usually don't get it wrong. Can I actually say that? We usually don't get it wrong. No, flip that around. We usually don't get it right. There we go. All right. um, we usually don't respond in helpful ways to a lot of things in life. Um, so, so we need to recognize that. And, and, and notice this too. And we, we don't have time to tease all this out right now. But notice with me, Kubler-Ross's model and modern psychology lack crucial truths that are essential for understanding grief. Like how about this? Um, God? How do you even begin to deal with grief if you don't know God? If you don't know Him as good and righteous and merciful, if you don't know Him as a loving Heavenly Father who's sovereign over all, who's redeeming all things for good, who's, who's with you in your grief, who doesn't leave you in your grief, who calls you to come to Him in grief, you don't know that? Well, no wonder you're not responding to your grief well, right? That's not in the model. Because most psychology doesn't even consider uh, uh, the things of God. Think about this. A biblical view of people. Uh, in our paradigm today, how, how does modern psychology, and let's not pick on psychology, how, how does the world tend to view human beings today in terms of what makes them up? How do we understand people today? Basically good. Basically good. Yeah. Finding your purpose. Yeah, finding your purpose. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Yeah, yeah, the country music, right? Um, would you say that, that, especially as we move into to scientific realms of social science psychology, we tend to view ourselves as a product of our biology 
or as a product of our circumstances. Which is why when we grieve or when we're fearful or when we're angry or whatever we are, we're going to do one of two things. We're going to blame our biology or we're going to blame our circumstances or other people. Right? And that's because uh, the world does not understand that God made people as image bearers both spiritual and biological, right? We're, we're body and soul. And we are morally responsible before God for how we respond, though our genetics are influential and though our circumstances are a factor, for sure. But we are nonetheless made in the image of God to respond to Him and in ways that please Him. Now, do you think the world understands that? No, they're blaming genes and they're blaming circumstances. And the end result is they're going to look for solutions in either changing circumstances or some sort of medical intervention. Okay, Grant? The answer is we have more chemical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything gets reduced to a chemical issue of some reason. Yeah, that's exactly it. When we view ourselves as only body, we reduce every problem to a medical problem of some sort. Okay, And again, you guys get the idea. There's no sin and suffering. There's no appreciation uh, of, of the fact that um, you know, sin is real and suffering is real and why we live in a world of sin and suffering. The Bible, the Bible story explains that. There's no mention of redemption and sanctification, of death, of judgment, of heaven. I'm thinking those, those patients that she saw, hundreds of patients, thousands of patients, all of them, most of them, die without Christ. Well, how do you die in hope and joy if you don't know Christ, who's the only way you can have hope beyond, beyond death? You can't. Not in any sort of, you know, anchor in reality. So, so the, the, the model just, her model reflects a, a pencil drawing of humanity. It's just there's so many things that are left out and wrong and misunderstood. So again, I'm not beating up on her or the book or the model. I'm just saying as Christians, we've got the whole thing. And that's what gives us insight on how we understand grief. Now in the Bible, this is review, so we won't look at this in detail right now, but we've looked before that the Bible actually presents different types of grief. Grief because of the death of a loved one. Uh, we see that in Genesis 50 when uh, Jacob dies. Joseph and his brothers bury their father, and they have a great season of grief. We, we see a, a different type of grief in tragedy or sorrow. That, that's what Lamentations is all about. The, the Babylonians have invaded. The temple is broken. The, the, the city is on fire. Children are di- dead in the streets. Young men and women are being taken off to Babylon as slaves. And, and the, the whole nation is grieving because of tragedy and sorrow. We also see grief... And this is especially what Lamentations wants us to focus on. And I think it's the most common um, type of sorrow that's commanded in the Bible. And that is a sorrow, a grief over our sin or the consequences of sin. And again, we see that in Lamentations. Now you say, what's the common denominator in the Bible? What, What ties all of these types of grief together? There's one common denominator, loss. Grief is about loss. And um, it could be the loss, and notice, it's the loss of something we value, right? So it could be a loved one. It could be life, even the life of your pet, right? It doesn't have to be human life. 
It could be loss of health. It could be loss of your marriage. It could be loss of your reputation. It could be loss of finances, loss of someone's trust. Or maybe you lost someone's trust. It can be loss of fellowship with God. The the grief that we ought to have when we sin is a loss of fellowship with God that moves us toward repentance, that moves us toward reconciliation, that moves us toward the restoration of that fellowship with God. The common denominator in all these forms of grief is loss. So so here's my definition. I've, I've teased you for weeks now. Here's my definition of grief, okay? Grief is the painful sorrow we experience because of loss. That's what grief is. It's the painful sorrow that we experience because of loss. It is painful, right? Grief is not pleasant. It is painful. It is pain of soul, and it is pain of body, isn't it? Your body hurts in grief, just like your soul hurts in grief. And that's what grief is. It's a painful sorrow because of loss. Now, we also have to be careful as we look at our Bibles because grief usually has accomplices. And what may start off as a wholesome and appropriate grief often brings along teammates, often finds accomplices, ungodly emotional peers that will take that wholesome grief and turn it into something ugly and sinful and inappropriate. What are some of those accomplices? We've talked about them. Depression, despair, hopelessness, denial, guilt, fear, anxiety, anger, withdrawing, foolish actions like like making rash financial decisions or turning to addiction or something like that. Even physical realities like sleeplessness, loss of appetite, feeling numb, feeling ill, or flip it around, oversleeping, overeating, right? There's a physical dimension to grief even as our souls are processing all of this. Um, So watch out for it. As you go through grief, as you walk with somebody that goes through grief, look for the ways that Satan is going to take advantage of that sadness and turn it into an occasion for sin and for horrible decisions and even lifelong, uh, mom- lifelong consequences that can come from a foolish decision made in a moment. Okay, So let's help each other with that. We've also seen, and if you have Lamentations open there, I haven't forgotten about that. If you have Lamentations open, um, remember we've seen this. The whole book of Lamentations is a reminder that grief is supposed to be expressed. That's what lament is, right? Lament is the expression of grief. And, and in, in biblical culture, that happened in different ways, right? In biblical culture, grief is expressed through appearance. People would put on sackcloth and ashes. We see that happening in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Through verbal expressions. That's what chapter 1 and chapter 2 are all about. These verbal expressions of weeping, of wailing, of crying out, and through singing. Lamentations, without saying it directly, is saying indirectly, when you're grieving, sing. Because singing is a way that we both express grief, and it's also a way that God helps us in grief. We're going to talk about singing and sadness in the next week or two, okay? But what does that mean? Grief is meant to be expressed. You know what that means? You don't have to, you don't have to pretend to be normal when you're grieving. 
In fact, in biblical culture, uh, it was such that, you know, you did things with what you wore and what you put on your head where everybody knew you were grieving. So, so hiding your grief is not something we're supposed to do. Now, now, our culture grieves differently. You don't have to follow what the Hebrews did. But the point is, expressing grief is normal and even a healthy and good thing to do. You don't have to pretend to be normal when you're grieving. And it's okay to express sorrow. You know, uh, past generations, oh, you can't ever express your grief, can't express your emotion, can't express... No, no, no. It's good to express your sorrow in appropriate ways. And singing is an appropriate response, which we'll talk about another time. Here's another thing. Um, if you're in Lamentations, tur- turn with me to John 16 for a moment. And um, <laughs> this is really insightful. I want you to remember, we've talked about this before, and I will say it again. Our emotions reveal us. Your emotions reveal the real you. And every emotion tells you something different about yourself. Anger is the emotion of justice, isn't it? Anger tells you what you believe is right and what you believe is wrong. Fear tells you what? What am I afraid of? What do I love? What what, what do I not want to happen, right? Grief. What does grief do? Grief exposes what you value. Grief exposes what you value. And I can prove that to you in two words. College football. Right? Um, If you love the Aggies, you will rejoice when they win. You will grieve for weeks when they lose. Why? Because you value them. If you're a UT Longhorn fan, no booze, no booze, um, You will rejoice when they win and when the Aggies lose. And you will grieve when the Aggies win and you lose, right? It's that simple, guys. Grief shows you what you value. It reveals your heart. And listen, that's part of what God's doing in grief. He's, He's showing you, I don't care what you say. Your grief shows you what you really put value on. And sometimes that, 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 that's a very, that's a good thing. And you go, the, the reason I, I, am, I am a mess today is I loved grandma. Or it may be, the reason I'm a mess today is because I love this thing over here that God says isn't really that important. But my grief over my overvaluation of that thing is causing me to be unfaithful in things that God says are more important. You see that? So, so grief shows you what's your value. Look at John uh, chapter 16. Jesus is writing to his or he's speaking to his disciples here in context. And um, he's talking about his death and resurrection. And uh, he's just told them, I'm, I'm going to go to the cross. And so he says in 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve. Now you say, wait, 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 wait. So Jesus says, I'm going to go die. I'm going to the cross. The disciples are going to what? They're going to weep. What's the world going to do? Why the different response? Why? Talk to me. Different values, right? 
you know, the world thought, we're killing a crazy man, one less crazy man on the streets of Rome. The disciples said, he was the son of God. And he was nailed to a cross for no crime of his own. You see, it's a different value. The value is what's behind your grief. It shows you what you value. It, re- it reveals your heart. So you can look at 2 Samuel 11 where, where um, David's son becomes ill and eventually dies and his grief over the value of his son. Uh, John 11, Jesus, uh, Mary and Martha at Lazarus' uh, tomb. Right? You can see this all over the Bible, but um, uh, grief reveals what you value. And grief is designed to move us toward God. Um, again, we, we read it in Psalm 86, right? Uh, do you remember, do you remember the phrase that, that David uses here? It does just one illustration. I'll, I'll read it for you again. Listen to this. He says, In the day of trouble, I will call upon you. Right? David says, When I'm grieving, when I'm struggling, when I'm hurting, I'm gonna go to God. Why? Because you will answer me. You see that? Grief and hard things are, are, des- are designed to prompt us to go to God for help. And that's what we need to do. That's part of what we're, to, we're supposed to do in grief is move toward God. Grief shows us also, this is interesting guys, that suffering is not morally neutral. Suffering is not morally neutral. What do you mean? It's easy when something hits you that is hurtful and hard to say that's just hurtful and hard. But remember... We are still dealing with internal fallenness. You know what that means? When we have an occasion of suffering or hurt or grief, our fallen hearts will turn that into an occasion for sin. Suffering is not neutral. You have to be careful to guard your heart, guard your heart, guard your heart, so that that occasion of suffering doesn't turn into an opportunity for sin. Grief shows us that. If if grief was morally neutral, we would all grieve perfectly. But we usually don't. We grieve in ungodly ways. Grief may also be an occasion for both pursuing comfort and practicing repentance. It's interesting. We don't have time to go to Job. But you would think after losing his ten kids, losing his health, being banished from the city, everybody abandons him except three friends that give bad counsel, God would be like, you know what? You've had a pretty hard time here and I think you need some encouragement. But he doesn't. God goes off on him for two and a half chapters. Why? Because in the midst of Job's grief, he turned it into an occasion for sin, and God is saying, that's not okay. So God calls him to repentance first, two and a half chapters, and then encourages him and restores him, right? So remember, grief may be an occasion. Not That's what we want to do. We see someone grieving, encourage, encourage, encourage. And, and that's the right thing to do. That, that's the right impulse. But don't forget that grief may also be an occasion for repentance if sinful responses have crept in through grief. So what's godly grief? We talked about this before. It's based on God's assessment of reality, not denying it. We've seen that in Lamentations, right? Godly grief is based on reality, not denying it. It brings questions, doubts, struggles, and hurts to God, but without sinful anger or accusation. That's Habakkuk. We we looked at this a while ago. Habakkuk goes to God and says, I don't get it. I don't understand. I I do not. When are you going to act? How long are you going to let this go? And God says, well, I could tell you, but you wouldn't believe me. 
But what that illustrates is what? Habakkuk was right to go to God with his doubts and his concerns and his fears and and his questions. It's good to go to God with those things. We need to go to God. Uh, And grief can coexist with a humble confidence and biblical hope which avoids despair and godless depressions. Um, uh, just You have it marked down in, in your Bible there. Just write a little circle around it. This section of Psalm 119, um, which is, where is it here? Um, yeah, the, uh, it's the D section, the letter D, starting at verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. He says in 28, My soul weeps because of grief, so strengthen me according to your word. Do you see that? <clears throat> what, what he's saying is, Grief can coexist with a growing, humble confidence that's looking to God for help. Right? You're not trying to eliminate grief. It's not, I gotta kill this thing. But you also don't wanna just wallow in it and not pursue God. A, A humble confidence and even a quiet joy can coexist while you're grieving. And the, and the Psalms emphasize that. It's anchored in the promises and character of God. We see that in Lamentations, right? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So godly grief has to have two feet bolted to the promises and character of God if it's going to grieve in the right way. And by the way, I was thinking about this. Look at this. Remember those five grief stages? Let's test them. Jesus never denied reality was never sinfully angry, avoided despair, never lost hope, and always trusted his Father. And yet he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So that means, as common as those grief responses might be, they're not the Jesus responses we're looking for in grief. Does that make sense? Okay. Jesus is the perfect man, so we look to him to say, how are we supposed to do this in a way that pleases God? Okay, and lastly, I gave you a bunch of these here. Uh, Again, we've talked about some of these. Let's just walk through a few of these. How does God meet us in grief? See, we're supposed to go to God in grief, but you know what the reality is? God's going to meet us in grief too. How does He do that? He's there, first of all, just by being there with us. Psalm 46.1 God is our refuge and strength, a... He's always there on our worst day. Uh, Jesus, uh, the writer to Hebrews tells us that Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us. You have a friend that's always there in your grief. That's one way God meets us, just by being there, by being available, by listening to us. We saw that in Psalm 86, right? David says, I'm going to go to you because you're going to answer me. We go to God and we know he's listening. He, he's not like, you know, you know, absent-minded dad, right? He's, d- dad's there on the couch, but he's not there. He's in ESPN world, right? Our Heavenly Father is not zombie dad when it comes to that, right? He is there. He's listening. He's engaged. He's responding. And that's why David says, I'm going to go to him. Third, he sympathizes with us through Christ. Remember, Christ is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's our sympathetic high priest. So, so it's not just he's there and he's listening, but Jesus says, yeah, I know that what that, that's like. I feel for you. I get it. I understand. And then Jesus says, uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesizing this, what? Not only is Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but he goes on to say, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. You need to memorize that. 
His, his griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. So he doesn't just feel for us. He doesn't just listen. He's not just there. He says, can I take that off your shoulders? Can, can, I, can I get my Trinitarian shoulder under that burden with you and walk with you through this? That, that's what that means. We don't bear this alone. Uh, by giving us rest is a way God meets us. Matthew 11 says, Jesus says, Come to me, you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You, you can't find godly rest in grief in any other place. You can't find it on Amazon. You can't find it by busying yourself. You can't find it in an addiction. You can't find it in spending money. You can't find rest in withdrawing. You can't find rest in sleeping all day wrong. You can't find rest in, in planning and micromanaging. You only find rest in grief in Him. So let's go to Him for that. That's how He meets us. He, he meets us in grief by showing us the extent of His power and grace. We talked about this back in Lamentations. Uh, Christ's mercy and grace to help. His power perfected in weakness. He, help, he meets us by helping us see the good that we lost was His gift of grace. Remember Job? Remember what Job says? Ten kids, gone. One day. Satan's listening for that blasphemous accusation. What does he hear? Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. So I will bless his name. How do you, how do you respond when you got ten graves and your kids standing in, you know, in front of you? By believing that every one of those children was an undeserved gift of grace that God gave for a season and then took back in His wisdom and goodness. That's how you meet God. You meet God by recognizing that whatever you lost was a gift of grace from His hand. And in His wisdom and goodness, He gives and He can take away. And we bless His name because it's grace. It's undeserved. We also meet God in grief by reminding us of His character and promises. Lamentations reminds us of that, right? His faithfulness, His loving kindness, His mercy. We've seen that there. Here's another one. Here's another one. And this is, uh, this is getting heavy here, guys, so, so stay with me. God's going to meet you in grief by reminding you that having Him is more valuable than what was taken away from you. That, that, that's the spiritual arithmetic that we have to do in our minds in grief. Listen to Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? Right? And, and besides you I have nothing uh, besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. Listen to this. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's he saying? If I have God, 
I have the most important thing I can have, the most valuable thing I can have. God's going to do that in grief. Not to devalue your family member, your friend, your, your health. Not to devalue what you lost, but to magnify the value of your God. That's what he's doing in grief. He's also going to give us songs to sing. We'll talk about this next week. We'll talk about singing and sadness. God's going to meet you in grief by giving you songs to sing. That's why the book of Psalms exists in your Bible, so that you will open it and you will sing it and read it and pray it. And God will work healing in your heart in grief in part through your singing. And finally, God's going to meet you in grief by providing hope beyond this life. We know, guys, that death wins in every single one of us, right? It, it, it might be uh, normal old age. It might be cancer. It might be a car accident. It, it might be some tragic uh, situation. But death hits us all, right? How can we have hope with something that is 100% certain is going to happen to every one of us and everyone that we love? And Paul's answer to the Thessalonians is by remembering that we have a hope in our grief because of what Jesus did and because he's coming again and we can find refuge in him. What, was, what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will, say it, live even if he, he dies. There's your hope in grief. All right. There's more, but you've got to come back next week. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thanks for these reminders, and even as we think about grief in a biblical way, thank you for the ways that you meet us in sorrow and grief. Uh, might we turn to you in these ways, and might we lovingly come alongside others that are grieving uh, with the hope and uh, the promises that we just uh, reviewed. Uh, Lord, thank you that you love us, that you don't forsake us, that you understand, that you bear our sorrows, that you um, wipe away our tears. And um, Lord, thank you that we can make a difference, um, especially in moments of sorrow and grief, by being the body of Christ. Lord, give us grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.